Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 24th, 2023. My name is Melanie C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 22nd, 2023 are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study share ID number is 20962-20962. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study share ID number is 20963-20963. This morning, A Vision for You presents Surrender, the Gateway to the Miracle, Step 3. And hello, and welcome to everyone once again. It's great to have you all here today for a topic that's pivotal in the recovery journey. And I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker today who's going to take us through an important part of the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book on step three. Again, the topic is surrender, the gateway to the miracle. In the AA Big Book on pages 60, 61, 62, and 63, you'll find references and instructions to follow along with initially. Before a decision is made regarding step three, we must be convinced we're compulsive overeaters and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our shortcomings. I'm so sorry, our, our compulsive overeating. C, that God could and would if he were sought. Accepting step one and step two into our innermost selves was a must. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, okay. Even being convinced that step three line is a big one and perhaps difficult to know where and how to execute. We long ago decided that self-reliance was what we had to hold on to. We believed that everyone and then everything else let us down. However, here we are we are invited to take step three. Step three is a big deal for us in this recovery. It's about making that brave choice to trust our lives to a higher power. This step is more than just a decision, more than just a decision. It's a major shift in how we handle life and its challenges. Our speaker today has a real penchant for explaining how this kind of surrender isn't about giving up, but rather opening up a new possibility of strength, of complete reliance upon God, and deliverance from the pervasive disease of compulsive overeating. What makes our speaker special is the personal journey that was taken through these steps, the struggles felt, and the triumphs experienced. Here to share that experience with us, showing us how diving into step three moves us from battling our troubles to walking a path filled with hope and promise of healing, surrendering happily. As we get into this discussion on surrender and what it truly means, let's be open to the insights and stories our speaker will share. Please join me in warmly welcoming someone who really embodies the spirit and transformative power at step three. Welcome, Janet B. Welcome to you. Thank you, Melanie. Good morning, everyone. Well, Melanie, after that introduction, I am just very excited to hear myself speak. Um, so anyway, thank you. That was very kind. And um, good morning, everyone. I'm calling from North Carolina. I was formerly in New Jersey. And uh, this is a topic that is just so special to me. 
So on page 158 of our big book, we see alcoholics number three, the guy say, I prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn I'd never touch another drop, but by nine o'clock I'd be boiled as an owl, as in drunk. So here he is, he prayed, he swore he'd never do it again, but he couldn't even make it to, to work. At nine o'clock he was drunk. Well, how come? Is God mean? Do, can we pray and pray and pray to God and nothing happens? Because that's what that guy said. He kept praying. He swore he'd never do it, but he kept getting drunk. How come? And I think that was my problem for so many years. I always believed in God. Um, I don't remember ever a point where I didn't believe in God. And I would pray, God, please help me stop eating. Please help me stop eating. And it didn't work. And I've realized why. Because I was treating God like a genie, like Santa Claus. Like, God, come out of your bottle, remove my food obsession, and then go back in your bottle and leave me alone. And, of course, it doesn't work that way. Because in our big book, in Chapter 4, it tells us God is everything or else he is nothing. Kind of a strange expression, like God is everything. Does that mean like God is my water bottle and God is my pen that I can like look at my pen and bow down because it's God? Well, of course not. It doesn't mean that. It means that either I give God everything or it's if I was giving God nothing, nothing. So I've got to give God everything. Well, how do I do that? Especially, how do I do it if I don't even believe he exists? So let's work on that today. Um, if you have your big books, I'm just going to start page 58, how it works, right? What a great topic. What a great title for that chapter. It works. They're going to tell us how. And they're going to tell us it's a bit of work. So I'm going to start on top of page 58 where it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Well, that's great. Um, for many years, my first six and a half years in OA, I thought I was one of those rarelies, that I was going to meetings, making the phone calls, writing down my food and calling it into a sponsor, but I could not stay abstinent. Often, just like the guy who prayed and prayed and got drunk, couldn't make it to nine o'clock in the morning couldn't even make it to work before I binged. But then it tells me, who are these people who fail? And it says people who can't or won't completely give themselves, completely do the simple program. And then it says, who aren't honest. And the paragraph goes on to say that the people who don't recover are those who are incapable of grasping and developing a living, which demands rigorous honesty. Get those words they're using to talk about honesty. It's demanded. So not suggested. It's demanded. And it has to be rigorous. Um, because God doesn't coexist with dishonesty. If I'm dishonest, it's like I've taken a big black magic marker and written the words, keep out God across my heart. God won't come in when there's dishonesty. Why? Because if I'm dishonest, it means I'm trying to manipulate someone or some situation to get what I want. And if I'm trying to run the show, God's not going to step in. There can only be one person, one entity running the show, and it's either me or God. So it tells me right off the bat that I have to be honest. If I'm not honest, I can't expect any results. Can you believe that my first six and a half years in OA, 
nobody told me that. I heard it read, you know, as part of like preambles and stuff, but no sponsor. And I had about 50 sponsors before I recovered. No sponsor ever said, Janet, you have to be honest. Otherwise, it won't work. I wish someone had. So the next paragraph says, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. So that tells me when we tell our stories what we're supposed to talk about, what we used to be like, living on self-will, what happened, we found God, or God found us and transformed us, and what we are like now, living sane, happy, useful lives. And then it tells us, really, who can get a sponsor, who can work the steps? It says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and I say then and only then, you are ready to take certain steps. So there's two decisions that we have to make, right? That if you want what we have, and what do we have? Step 12 tells us a spiritual experience as the result of these steps. So what's a spiritual experience? Why should I even care? Well, page 25 of our big book tells us what a spiritual experience is. And they say, it's so beautiful how they say it. The great fact is just this and nothing less. So friends, we should settle for nothing less than this. We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, and here's what it does. It revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So that's why we need a spiritual experience. It's basically God coming in and creating a revolution inside my soul so that I think differently about life, about other people on this planet, and about God. I think totally differently. And you know, the way I like to think about it is flowers can only grow in a certain soil, and then weeds grow in another kind of soil. And if the soil of my soul is filled with resentment, fears, self-will, self-pity, well, I've created a kind of soul soil where the compulsive eating illness can breed and grow and take root. So I need to have the soil of my soul changed by living an unselfish, self-sacrificing, God-centered, other-centered life. And the beautiful thing is, because I can't do this by myself, this program tells me that if I take 12 simple but not always easy steps, God will do it for me. God will come in and enter my heart, enter our hearts and lives in a way which is miraculous and commence to do what I couldn't do for myself. I couldn't remove this compulsive eating obsession, but he can and he does if, so back to our text on page 58, you want what we have, if we want that, and if we are willing to go to any lengths to get it. So what does that mean? I mean, I was a smart aleck, and I would say, well, does that mean I have to be willing to rob a bank? Well, no, of course not, right? This program tells me I have to be honest, and I would think bank robbery goes on a list of things that are dishonest, right? Um, I have to be willing to go to any lengths, willing to be honest willing to be self-sacrificing, willing to take these steps, 
willing to put the welfare of others and the desires of others ahead of my own. Um, so if I'm willing to do that and willing to take direction. So for me, what that meant is, I guess, sponsor number 51, I took a tough as nail sponsor who I knew understood recovery and who I hoped and prayed could help me. And then I said to that person, I will do anything you tell me. Um, and thank God, the first thing I was told was that I could have zero dishonesty in my life. So from that minute, I made a decision I would not be dishonest. And I mean, I was someone who in the past had faked rapes, who had taken a razor and slashed myself up to get attention. I mean, my middle name could have been dishonesty. And I made a decision I was going to be honest and I was going to do whatever I was told to do. And my sponsor was not easy on me. Thank God. Um, I was later told that he got an intuitive thought that you value the most what you have to work the hardest for. So to make it difficult for me. Um, and I worked hard and I truly value this recovery. So then it tells us next. At some of these we bought. So balking or not wanting to doesn't disqualify us, right? I can make a decision to do something I don't want to do. Um, when my kids were babies and would cry in the middle of the night, I did not want to get up and feed them or change them or whatever they needed. But I did it because I had made a decision that I was going to be a good mom, and that's what good moms do. So I balked, but I did it anyway. Um, so it's okay if we don't want to do everything our sponsors tell us, but as long as they're telling us to do things in line with the principles in this book, I think we should do them if we want to get a spiritual experience. And on that note, let me say, um, I believe, this is my opinion, that when a person is looking for a sponsor, we shouldn't just assume that the first person who raised their hand that they're available to sponsor should definitely be our sponsor. We are entitled to check our sponsors out, to ask them, have you worked these 12 steps? Have you had a spiritual experience? Um, what, like things like that to see if the person has what we want. And if they do, I believe we should do whatever they ask us to do. They tell us, they go on bottom of 58, some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, old ideas that I can do it my way. And the result was nil, nothing until we let go absolutely. And then it tells us we deal with alcohol or food, cunning, baffling, and powerful. I always think it's so interesting that they apply those words, cunning, baffling, and powerful, to an inanimate object like alcohol or for us, food. Food isn't cunning. I mean, it can't think. So to me, I think that um, there's an illness behind this, um, cunning, baffling, and powerless that I can't fight. Top of page 59, it says, without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. So I think if we could ask, like, what did the founders of AA, the writers of this big book, pray for us? I think there it is. May you find God now. That's what they want. And that's what we need to do. And then they said about telling us how. So first they tell us half measures fail, us nothing, right? We all know in school, if you get half right, if you get 50%, you fail. Um, we can't do halfway. And it says, we stood at the turning point. 
We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. A couple interesting things here. If this God is going to protect us and care for us, this must be a God who really loves me. You know, I was one of the people who had an image of God that he had this big book, and on the left side of the ledger, he was writing down my good things, and on the right side, he was writing down my bad things. And if when I died, the bad outweighed the good, I was in trouble for all eternity. But they're telling me, here's a God who's going to protect me and care for me. If I ask him to, that's all I have to do is ask. That's it. Um, and, you know, I often think back to like middle school social studies where, you know, we learned about the kings and he had the serfs work in the land. And so if there is a king and a good king and he says to people, live on my land, work my land, and I will protect you. I will take care of you. So when the invading army comes, the king called for the drawbridges to be pulled up and everyone inside is safe and protected. But if I, being a willful slave, run off the land because of resentment against the king or resentment against someone else, or because I think I can do it better than this king and I can make it on my own, then when the invading army comes, I'm not safe and protected, not because the king doesn't love me, but because I've run off on my own. My personal belief is that this king loves me so much that when I run off on my own, he sends a search and rescue party after me. So it tells us half measures avail us nothing. Here are the steps that we take that are suggested as a program of recovery. Now, suggested doesn't mean optional. This is like one suggested program of recovery, but if I'm going to do it, I have to do it all. And it starts by admitting I'm powerless over food and that my life is unmanageable. I work through the first nine steps to unblock the channel to God. Then in step 10, I just continue clearing away the wreckage of each day. Step 11, I pray and meditate so that I can fill the channel. And then step 12, I carry the message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, what principles? The principles of honesty, self-sacrifice, tolerance for people whose views are different than my own. And it says, page 60, many of us exclaim, what an order, I can't go through with it, right? It sounds hard. When I first heard someone talk about the 12 steps in a way that I could understand, she asked me to read the SIG book. And I read it that night, the first 164 pages, and I came back to her the next day, and she said, are you willing to do whatever is I said, well, there's this one amend I'm not willing to make, right? An ex-boyfriend who I had faked a rape to to get him to pay attention to me. I was not keen on making that amend because I was hopeful he would become my boyfriend again in the future. And she just said to me, are you willing to believe that by the time you get to step eight, you'll be a different person? And I said, okay. And by the way, I was, I didn't make that amend. He did not become my boyfriend again, um, but God had a better plan for me. But anyway, it says, do not be discouraged. No one has, among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles, these principles of self-sacrifice, um, tolerance, 
Um, and then it says, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. They're talking about spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. They're not talking about sticking to a food plan perfection. You know, sometimes someone will say, well, I only binged twice this week, and last week I binged five times, so that's progress. That is not what they're talking about. No one could go into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous and say, I only had four drinks today instead of six, and that's progress. Either God has removed our food problem or he hasn't. If he has removed it, we are going to be able to stick to our food plan automatically. It'll just happen. And then what I think is one of the most important parts in this book, it says our description of the alcoholic or compulsive eater, the chapter to the agnostic and our personal adventures before and after make for three pertinent ideas. One, that we were compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, and could not manage our own lives. So I have to believe that. I have to believe I am a real compulsive eater. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think the, one of the best descriptions is on page 24, where it says, at a certain point of the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail that I learn that I have, for reasons yet obscure, that I have lost the power of choice in drink or in eating. So it tells me that it's not a question of lack of desire. I had a strong desire to stop. It didn't help. No one would ever tell someone with cancer that if her cancer cells are still multiplying, she doesn't have a strong enough desire to recover from cancer. It tells me that the most powerful desire to stop is of, excuse me, is of absolutely no avail. It's not enough. Knowing that I could not put down the food without help and that I could not manage my own life. My life was a train wreck. I couldn't be unselfish. I couldn't care about other people. I just couldn't. It's like it wasn't my DNA. I needed a new DNA. So I knew I was a compulsive eater and couldn't manage my own life. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism or our compulsive eating. That means no group could do it, right? Because what if everyone in the group goes out and binges? And, you know, our book talks about we start out powerless, but as we go through the steps, we get more and more power. And on page 46, it says, as soon as we begin to believe in the possible existence of God, we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction. The group can't give me possession, can't possess me with a new sense of power and direction. The only thing a group or another person can do is give me guidance, love, support, and prayer. But it can't relieve my food problem. And then see, here's the key that God could and would if he were sought. So let's break that down. Believing that God could. Well, what if I don't believe in God at all? Then what do I do? Well, then I really need to go back to step two because, right, um, step two tells me came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I love page 55, my favorite line in the big book. It says, Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, 
but in some form or other, it is there. That is amazing. They are saying deep down in everyone is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created me, he put the fundamental idea of himself, he planted it inside me. He gave me one heart, two lungs, two kidneys, and the fundamental idea of himself. But just like cataracts can obscure my physical view of the world, it's telling me I have things that are like spiritual cataracts that can obscure my idea, my belief in God, and that's calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. Calamity, bad things that have happened to me, those I love, or the world in general. Bill Wilson had that problem, right? He said, like, the war, the chicanery, the burnings that he saw. I mean, imagine, he might have seen whole towns burnt out. That that made him think that if there was the devil, he's the boss. I mean, calamity obscured Bill's view. Um, pomp, that means that's worship of myself, thinking I want what I want and nobody better get in the way. And worship of other things. Um, these are my idols, right? Um, worship of, I don't know, the desire to get married, have kids, how my kids are doing. That's a big worship of other things that I had. Um, just status, my career, my money, my clothes, all these things can obscure my view of God. And they say, but in some form or other, it is there. Faith and a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives. Because what good is, is faith if I don't have the power to overcome it? They say, these are facts as old as man himself. So they are saying that faith in God is a fact. It's a fact. So we just have to take the time to look at calamity, pomp, and worship of other things, our spiritual cataracts. What if we don't want to? Well, I would say if a person doesn't want to, then there's a step one issue. Because um, there's the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. If I am feeling that this illness is going to kill me spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and finally physically, I am going to be desperate. No one wants to go through chemotherapy except someone with cancer who believes it's her only hope. So we're at C, part one of C, to believe that God could. Okay, so let's say I believe there's a God. Then I would say, well, let's start small. Do you believe that God could restore other people to sanity? And if we have any intellectual integrity, we would say, of course, because we would see that God has restored all these other people to sanity. So God could do it. And then I would say, do you believe that God could restore you personally to sanity if he wanted to? He may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? And then, of course, we would have to say, well, yeah, he's God. He could if he wanted to but I don't think he wants to. And that's the second part, that God could and would if he were sought. So someone may say, well, I believe God could, but I don't believe he will restore me personally to sanity. And I have found that there's generally five reasons why people think God will not restore them to sanity. And this is important, right? Because the next line says, being convinced we were at step three. 
So if we are not convinced that God can and will restore us personally to sanity, we can't move on to step three. So what are the reasons why I might think God could restore me to sanity, but he won't for me personally? Number one is I've done a really bad thing. Number two is not so much I've done something bad, but just this thing we call shame, the feeling I'm a bad person, I'm not worthy of it. Um, number three, it's my fault I have this illness. God might help people with cancer, but he won't help me because I caused this. Um, number four, I've tried it so many times before and it hasn't worked. And number five, I'm not putting in the, I'm not willing to do the work to seek him. So number one, um, I've done a really bad thing or some really bad things. Can totally relate with that, but thank God, so could the founders. And they put steps eight and nine in this program so that we have a chance to make amends for the bad things we've done. I made amends to the boy who I faked a rape with, and I made amends to the hospital where I went for a fake rape exam. We can make our amends. Number two, if I just feel I'm not worthy of it, that God could restore me to sanity, but he won't because I don't deserve it. I would say to that person, we really have two options. You can go to therapy and spend like, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to have a therapist try and tell you why you're worth it. I personally don't think that would work. And the second option is to accept the fact that I'm not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of anything that God could ever do for me. But the great thing, guys, is that worthiness is not a requirement. You will not find that word anywhere in the first 164 pages. Worthiness is not a requirement. Willingness is a requirement. God doesn't care if we're worthy. I certainly was not worthy of all he did for me, and I am still so unworthy of all he continues to do for me. Thank God that he didn't make worthiness a requirement. So if I'm willing, that's enough. Number three, it's my fault. I mean, the book says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. So perhaps my selfishness caused it. The founders of, the, of AA were, you know, they really didn't take a position on why we had it. Was it hereditary, genetic, did our selfishness cause? You know, they don't, um, they don't really address it. So let's say that I believe it really is my fault, okay? Um, and let's say... As I'm pondering this, I'm crossing the street, looking at my cell phone, and I get hit by a truck. And then the ambulance comes to take me to the hospital so a surgeon can fix my broken legs. Would I ever say to the ambulance driver, don't take me to the hospital to get my broken legs fixed. It's my fault. I was looking at my cell phone, crossing my street. Don't fix my broken legs. It's my fault. I would never do that. I would as you can, right? But when it comes to God, suddenly, like we're all, um, you know, I have like this great integrity, like, well, God, I can't ask your help because it's my fault. I caused this. Um, it's okay. I can go to God anyway, even if it's my fault. Number four, um, I've tried it so many times before and it hasn't worked. Um, I don't think God is arbitrary and up there flipping a coin, heads Janet recovers, tails she doesn't. I think that these 12 steps are a formula, really like a formula for a miracle, 
which is crazy to think about, um, a formula for a miracle. So maybe in the past, I had the wrong formula. I was told a lot of wrong things to do in the past, things that just didn't work and were directly opposed to what's in the big book. So let's say, again, I have my cell phone that miraculously survived the incident where I got both my legs broken. And I've been trying to take pictures on it for six and a half years. And I'm pushing this button and I can't take one single picture. And then my son or someone comes in the room and says, Mom, you're pushing the wrong button. You're pushing the on-off switch. Here's the right button. Suddenly, I can take pictures. It doesn't matter if it's my first day trying to take pictures or if I've been trying to take pictures for six and a half years. If I've gotten the wrong information before about how to take pictures on my phone, or maybe I got the right information, but I didn't apply it before because I thought I didn't really need to. I could take them by pushing the on off button. It doesn't matter. When I start pushing the right button, I can take pictures. And the fifth reason is I'm not willing to seek God. I'm not willing to do the work. And to that person only, I would say you are right. You're right. Because it says that God could and would relieve my alcoholism, relieve my compulsive eating if he were sought. If I'm not willing to put in the work to seek him, I can't expect to get better. That's not fair. That's like going to a bank and asking for a loan and saying, but I won't sign the papers. And I won't guarantee I'll repay the money, but give me the money anyway. No. Um, and seeking God, well, what does that mean? I think at the very least it means spending time with him, seeking him. Um, I ask my sponsors, to, my sponsees to spend at least 30 minutes every morning with God in prayer, meditation, spiritual reading. If they don't yet believe in God, that's okay. You can say, dear God, who may or may not exist, I'm not sure you're there, and if you are there, I don't know if you care about me, but if you are there and if you care, please help me, and I'll try to do everything that I think you would want me to do. We could start out baby steps, but we have to start. Page 60, second to the last paragraph, being convinced. So that is being convinced that I'm a compulsive eater, can't manage my own life, that no human power can relieve my compulsive eating, and that God can and he will if I seek him. Only then can I proceed to step three, which is that we discern, decide to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understand him. My will, that means I will obey, I will surrender, and my life, I will trust him with the results, and I will not have any demands on how my life will be. And then they say, I mean, a fair question. Okay, what do we mean by that? And what do we do? And they say the first requirement, so the first thing, is that I have to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And I have found it super helpful to read the next two paragraphs out loud in first person, putting my name in, if I ever have a resentment, because I will see why I have it. So I say the first requirement is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Why? Why won't it be a success? Because on that basis, 
I am almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. So my husband used to smoke and I wanted him to stop smoking. That is a good motive, right? I mean, who wants to see your husband smoking and get a risk of lung cancer and everything? But it put me in collision, even though my motives were good. Most people, I try to live by self-propulsion. I am like an actor who wants to run the whole show. I'm forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in my own way. If my arrangements would only stay put, if only my family, my boss, my coworkers would do as I wished, the show would be great. So here's the problem. Um, I'm trying to like put on a Broadway production and other people don't know it. They don't know that they're actors and, and I've never given them a script or I may have, um, but they don't want the script. They never signed up to be in the play, but I'm demanding that this play exist. And that is my problem. I found that step three means that in one way, my life is very small. What do I mean by that? It means that other, how other people live their lives is not my business and that I cannot have goals and demands for their lives. Now, I could wish my husband could stop smoking. I could pray for him to stop smoking. I could wish that my adult children would go to church. I could pray for it, but I cannot try to make things happen. For me, a third step means that other people are able to live their lives the way they want without me trying to control how they do it. So what does it say, page 61? If people would do as I wish, the show would be great. Everybody, including myself, would be pleased. I mean, really, isn't that all I'm really concerned with? And even if I'm not, if I think, well, my kids would be happier if they went to church, that is not my business. Not my business of what would please everybody else. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, I may sometimes be quite virtuous. I may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. I don't think I was any of those things before recovery. On the other hand, I may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. And then it says, what usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. My kids rebel even more. My husband um, instead of smoking in front of me, starts smoking secretly. And then that puts a risk in our relationship. So then what happens to me? I begin to think life doesn't treat me right. So now I have self-pity. And as one of my friends in recovery says, self-pity parties usually end with a cake. I decide to exert myself more. I become on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious. I substitute manipulative, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit me. Admitting I may be somewhat at fault, maybe I nagged a little too much. I am sure other people are more to blame. I become angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is my basic trouble? So my number one problem, am I not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? I want my husband to stop smoking so that I'll feel better and more secure and not have to worry. I want my kids to go to church so that I'll feel good about their lives. Uh -uh. I'm not allowed to do that. 
again, I can have a desire, I can pray, but I cannot have an emotional demand. I can't have an emotional demand that my kids go to a certain college or even go to college. Um, I, I, just, I can't have any because it tells me if I do that, I am a self-seeker even when trying to be kind. And I'm a victim of the delusion, a delusion, an insane thought that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I only manage well. Both of my parents were diabetic, so I, you know, inherited a, I guess, a diabetic gene that even though I eat, like, really healthy and, you know, the way I'm supposed to, I now have high blood sugar and I have to take medication for it. And it is okay. I am not a victim of the delusion that I can have perfect health if I only manage well. I think what goes along with this and why it was so hard for me to take a third step was my sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to have kids who do what I want. I'm entitled to have good health. I'm entitled to have good weather. I'm entitled to have my boss, my coworkers think of me a certain way. When I realized that I'm entitled to nothing, life became easier because then I can see everything as a gift. So they go ahead and say, is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not my actions make everyone else wish to retaliate? Am I not even in my best moments a producer of confusion, confusion rather than harmony? That's the fruit of self-centeredness, that I produce confusion rather than harmony. And then it tells me our actor, me, is self-centered, egocentric. And then it compares us, um, the compulsive eater, the actor, to a bunch of different people. The retired businessman who's living in Florida complaining of the sad state of the nation. A minister, probably a good minister, sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Businessman, let's assume he was an honest businessman. Politicians and reformers, Let's even assume these are really good, honest politicians and reformers who were sure all would be utopia, page 62, if the rest of the world would only behave. And they are in the same category as the outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Okay, why? Why are those first three in the same category as a robber and an alcoholic who is lost up? lost all in his lockup. Because what are they all doing? They are looking at other people, complaining about the sad state of the nation, complaining over the sins of others, complaining that people don't behave doing what I want, complaining that my boss doesn't notice me. All of these things, I am looking at something else, someone else, and saying they're wrong instead of just focusing on my own relationship with God, which should be one of trust and obedience. Um, there's a famous writer, and at the turn of the 20th century, the London Times was soliciting articles, what's wrong with the world? And you would expect this writer to write this whole beautiful long thing about what's wrong with the world. And he just wrote, dear sirs, I am sincerely 
and he signed his name. There's enough for me to concentrate on just looking at what's wrong with me. Um, now, sometimes we're called to do something about things. I had a sponsor who was just so upset about animal abuse. And she said, you know what, if I'm so upset, I need to do something about it. And she started a small rescue shelter. Um, but to just sit there and say, the world is wrong. These people are wrong. Uh-uh, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not supposed to do that. And then it tells me, whatever I'm protesting about, are not most of us concerned, am I not concerned with myself, my resentments, and my self-pity? And then they tell us something so important. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. So not how I was raised, that my mother did this, my father did that, no. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my troubles. And the interesting thing about roots, if you look at a plant, you don't see the roots. They're underground, but you see the fruit. And what's the fruit of this illness? Resentment, fears, and harms to others. And that is what drives us. Resentment, fears, and harms. And it says we are driven by a hundred forms, fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And what do we do? We step on other people's toes and they retaliate it, retaliate. And it says, yeah, sometimes they seem to have made, made the first blow, but inevitably we find we have made decisions based on self, which placed us in a position to be hurt. And I think that's the root of my, a lot of my emotional hurt. I've made decisions that have placed myself in a position to be hurt. So if people are talking bad about me, what decision have I made? I've made a decision that what other people think or say about me is any of my business. If my kids decide they don't want to go to college or they don't want to go to church or they don't want to do something else that I think is important to them, I've made a decision that I have a right to decide what my children should do. If I'm hurt that my husband won't stop smoking for me, my problem is I've made a decision that I have a right to decide what my husband should or shouldn't do. I've made so many decisions based on myself that put me in a position to be hurt. So now if I ever feel hurt, I trace it back and I can say, what am I trying to do that I have no business doing? Um, a lot of my, all of my emotional hurts are decisions I've made based on myself. And by the way, um, once I decided that I wasn't going to bug my husband anymore about his smoking, he um, ultimately stopped smoking. So he's been free of smoking for 15 years now um, because I decided I was not going to nag him. It was going to be none of my business. So then it goes ahead and tells us our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. So I want to make a caveat here. If a child is molested or someone is raped at gunpoint, I would never say to that person, well, your trouble is of your own making. I would never do that. So I think we have to be very, very sensitive about things like that. Um, I'm talking about the run-of-the-mill troubles I have when my kids break my heart because they're not doing what I have an emotional demand that they do. And they say our troubles arise out of ourselves and the alcoholic, the compulsive eater, is an extreme example of self-will run riot 
So he usually doesn't think so. So this illness has a built-in denial syndrome. Um, and it says above everything. Okay, so that means like right off the bat, I was told at the beginning of the chapter, I have to be honest. And now it's telling me something else that I have to do. We alcoholics, we compulsive eaters must be rid of this selfishness. Why? Well, the root of my trouble is selfishness and self-centeredness. So the antidote has to be God-centeredness and unselfishness. So I have to be rid of it. So another thing I tell my sponsors is every day, do something unselfish and self-sacrificing for another person. Picking up the phone in my comfortable house to make an outreach call is generally not a self-sacrifice. For self-sacrifice, I have to be giving up something in order to help someone else, giving up time, giving up sleep, giving up something in order to help someone else. Basically, if I'm watching as much Netflix as I would want to watch, I'm not doing enough self-sacrifice. So it says I have to be rid of selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possibly. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. So they are telling me I can't even be truly unselfish without his help. Now, at the beginning, we don't want to use this as an, as an excuse and say, well, God hasn't removed my selfishness, so I'm a victim of it. No, I can be the one who empties the dishwasher. I can be the one who runs to put money in the parking meter when it's snowing and cold outside. I can be the one who volunteers to do an errand in my family. I can do that. And says we have to be rid of selfishness. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we couldn't live up to them, even though we would have liked to. I couldn't live up to the tenets of my religion. I just couldn't. Because again, my problem wasn't lack of knowledge or lack of desire. It was lack of power. And it says, neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help because I have to be centered around God. Otherwise, I'm automatically going to be centered around myself. And they say, this is the how and why of it. So it's like, okay, we're convinced of all this. We understand that we can't be selfish. We're going to try to be unselfish. We're going to be honest. And here's what we need to do now. Here is how we take our third step. First of all, we had to quit playing God. Why? Because it's like not noble and not nice to God? Probably. But here's the reason why they tell us it doesn't work. If I try to run the show, it doesn't work. So that's one. Two, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. Now, I can decide I'm going to quit playing God and let someone else be the director. Let, um, I don't know, a, a romantic relationship, what other people think of me, a politician, a cult leader, I could make someone else my director. But they say, no, it has to be God. And they, then they tell us a little bit about God. He is the principal. We are his agents. That means he's in charge and he's got work that has to be done. And I'm supposed to be his agent. Page 49 of our big book talks about that. It says, instead of regarding ourselves as, here's what we're supposed to regard ourselves as, intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation. That's what I'm supposed to do. 
and I was looking at that word creation this morning, and the first time I noticed it's with a capital C. I'm supposed to be an agent of God's ever-advancing creation. Well, what's he creating? He's already created the world, and I believe he is creating, recreating new people, us. I believe that God launches search and rescue missions for addicts, for compulsive eaters, and that it's our job once we recover to join him in these search and rescue missions as his agents. That is how God is advancing his creation now. He is recreating us, recreating people. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. And I always insert in there, he is the father, and we are his beloved children. Because not everyone has a father who was, his, was loving. He is the father, and we are his beloved sons and daughters. So he loves us. And he loves us so much, he is giving us soul-satisfying work to do, helping him in the recreation of other compulsive eaters. And then it says, most good ideas are simple, right? It's simple. I can't manage my own life. I have to stop trying. I have, and I have to let God do it. And I have to look to be his agent. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. So it's like you can picture this big arch, and on one side is bondage to the illness of compulsive eating. And we surrender, and we walk through this arch, and we have freedom. And top of page 63 tells us the fruit of taking a third step. It says, when we sincerely took such a position, the position that God is going to be in charge. And a simple way, I look at it like this. It's like normally we have goals. And the goals can be good ones, right? Get my kids to go to church. Get my husband to stop smoking. But they're my goals. But now I have a new paradigm, a new way of looking at things. And I have one goal, one uber goal. And that is to do God's will. That's it. So under the first model, if... You know, when my kids are old and they don't go to church, I will feel like a failure because my goal was to raise kids who go to church. But if my goal is simply to do God's will, I will just ask myself, God, did I raise them as best I can the way that I thought you wanted me to, in obedience to you? And if my answer is yes, then it really doesn't matter if my kids end up going to church. I might be sad if they don't but I will feel okay with God because I have done his will. So when we sincerely take such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed, like remarkable, wonderful. We had a new employer, an employer with a capital E. And I love that because that means my source of everything, my source of money, my source of everything ultimately comes from God. I had a real example of this um, when I was, I was in my early 30s and I had a job and my employers wanted me to join this organization that had views that I, I couldn't join. It just went against my, my morals and I wouldn't and I got fired. And I am, you know, shortly after got a new job, but it paid $15,000 a year less. At that time, 15000 was a big deal, 
And, and I was like, okay, you know, I believe this is God's will. And right then, my parents told me out of the blue that as part of their estate planning, they were going to gift me $18,000 a year. So I actually ended up with more. Now, would that have happened anyway? I don't know. But here's what I believe, that there can only be one person in the driver's seat of my life. And if I'm in that driver's seat, God's hands are tied. I've basically tied his hands so that he can't do anything. But when I get out of the driver's seat, he can give me a life beyond anything I could have imagined. So we have a new employer who is all powerful and says he provided what we needed if. So this is a conditional promise. Sometimes people say, oh, God, you know, will always give me whatever I need. But no, it's a conditional promise if I do two things. One, keep close to him. And two, perform his work well. Stay close to him. Prayer, meditation, you know, whatever spiritual reading we feel called to, talking to him during the day and doing his will as best I can. And then it says, established on such a footing where I am the agent and the beloved child. Here's what happens. We become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. I don't need to make everyone like me. I don't need to make my husband stop smoking or my kids go to church. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. So if my kids don't want to hear what I have to say, there'll be other areas where I can contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, remember back page 46, when we take our second step, we start getting our first, um, I like to call it infusion of power. And here we get more power. It flows in like a pink line of grace to my heart. As we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully because God's got my back. This is what will give me the courage to do my fourth step. God's got my back. I can face my resentments, my fears, my harms. We become conscious of his presence, realizing that he really does exist and he's here with me. And we begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. I no longer worry that God's up there with a baseball bat waiting to get me if my bad deeds outweigh my good. We are reborn. God is not in the fix it up a little bit business. He is in the transformation business, caterpillar to butterfly stuff. And then it says, we were now at step three. And many of us said to our maker, to God as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. God, here, take the raw material of myself and build me and then do with me whatever you want. Relieve me of the bondage of self so that my life will be easy. No, so I can better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. Why? So that I'll have a good, easy life. No, that victory over them may bear witness to people I will help of three things. God's power, that he's strong enough to do it. God's love, that he loves me, loves us enough to do this for him, and his way of life, how to live. And then we end with a prayer to do his will always. And it says we think well before taking this step. Like we don't make it glibly, making sure that we could abandon ourselves utterly to him. And, you know, the next paragraph tells us the wording is quite optional, 
as long as we express the idea, voicing it without reservation. I can only be without reservation if I trust that this God loves me, cares about me, and has a good plan for me. And it says this is only a beginning, right? Because we have to go ahead and clean up our past. Though it's honestly and humbly made, in effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. And I think the best example we have of that is the minister's son in the preceding paragraph, um, chapter. Ignatius it's on page 56, right? He becomes open-minded because he's at bottom. And he says, is it possible all the religious people I've known are wrong? And he gets humble. And what it doesn't say in We Agnostic, but it tells his full story is in Our Southern Friend, that he had gone to talk to someone else in the asylum. And that person said, you know, when you prayed before, I'll bet you always said to God, give me this or give me that. And if he did, that was the end of him. And if he didn't, you said, eh, there's no God anyway. Said that's not the right way. The right way is to say, God, take me and take all my troubles and do with me whatever you want. So that's what the minister's prayer, minister's son had been thinking about when he's pondering, is it possible? Everything I think about God is wrong. And then God came to him. And what beautiful words. It says, he stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore for the first time, but not the last time. He lived in conscious companionship with his creator and his alcoholic problem was taken away. And then they go ahead. Remember before I said, this book has the formula for a miracle. And on page 57, it talks about this minister's son. Once he surrendered his life to God, and God has restored his sanity, they say, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Then he knew. And then they tell us, even so, God has restored us all, 100% of us, to our right mind. Because once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. That's in chapter 5. And they conclude by saying, God has come. He has come to all 100% of the people who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. And that has been my experience and the experience of hundreds and thousands who have worked this thing. God is still in the miracle business. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you very much, Janet B. Thank you very much. How thorough and the way that it was just your, your life and your experience was sewn right into the words of the big book. And it's just, it's just melting and very illuminating. It's very wonderful, thorough teaching on step three and, and that marvelous step into that realm of the spirit. Thank you so much this morning. We'll have, at the end of this meeting, the opportunity to ask Janet for her contact information. So stay with us for that. Clear to the very, very end, please. The share ID number for today, Sunday, December 24th, 2023, is 20965. 20,965. So if you want to go back and listen in detail about that teaching, you'll have a chance to do that immediately by phone in just a little while. You'll be able to catch it off of our website as well.
So Janet, the lines are now open for questions for a few moments. If you have a question for Janet, please unmute your phone by pressing star one on your phone keypad. Offer your first name and the first initial of your last name and your state. And then immediately upon asking your question, press star one to remute your line again. Who would like to ask Janet a question this morning? Krista S. Crystal S. Krista okay. S. Krista. Okay, great. Thank you, Krista. Correct. Yes. Melinda. Melinda. First initial of your last name, Melinda? H as in horse. Thank you. Anyone else? Barbara A. Barbara A. Any other voices this morning? We have so far Krista S, Melinda H, and Barbara A. Let's start with Krista's question this morning. Star one, Krista. Hey, good morning, Janet. Thank you so much. This was incredibly thorough. Oh my gosh, I took so many notes. I'm back in the food after I've been in program for two years and have never gotten more than three months of abstinence continually. Um, and it's been really hard lately. So I have a sponsor now who I found through the Recovery Jam group. Um, and I'm still in the food. And I'm wondering if the problem, obviously the problem is me, but I'm wondering if part of the problem is that my sponsor is through the phone instead of in person or that the sponsor is recommending outside literature that it doesn't have to do with the big book, or basically I'm wondering if anything other than me is the problem, which I know is not possible, but like I'm also wondering if different voices are required, I guess, sometimes. Does that make sense? Yeah, so here's what I would say. As far as if your sponsor is over the phone or not, I mean, I will tell you I've sponsored a lot of people over the phone who got better and so have a lot of people I know. Um, but you are certainly within your rights to say, I want to get a sponsor who I could see in person. I would say if a person is eating compulsively, 100% of the time, it's our fault. It's the person's fault. Um, so I think the better thing for you to do would be to look and see do you have any dishonesty in your life? Are you making sure you connect with God every day? Are you making sure you do self-sacrificing acts every day? I think those are the most important things. And to make sure each step is thorough, starting with, are you willing to go to any lengths? And then, you know, are your steps thorough? I think those are the most important questions to ask. And see if your sponsor can help you with that or get with someone who's strong in recovery who can help you kind of dissect where, um, where you're struggling, like what the problems are. I did a podcast once. It's on vision. It's called Pitfalls in Recovery. It's things that lead us to relapse. So that might help you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much, Krista, for your question. Next up is Melinda H. with your question, and then Barbara will follow. 
Melinda Star One, please. Yes, Melinda H in Virginia. And um I have heard over the years that uh, resentment is the number one offender and yet if I have if I have a resentment um then the feeling that I get is that I'm wrong. Something's wrong with me if I have a resentment or a hurt from what someone has said. Um, and and so I know that the, the course of action is the, you know, 10, 11, and 12 on that. But why is it, what's wrong with me having the resentment? I mean, having the feeling. Why, why is that wrong? That's all. So I'm not, I'm not positive I understand your question. Are, are, are you saying, can, I, I heard everything you said. Can you just ask your question again, like one question, like as a question, the whole thing is a question? Why am I wrong for having the feelings of a resentment? Okay. Okay, got it. So the book says that we can't harbor resentment, right? That means I can't be a safe harbor for the resentments to dock. We will get resentments. That's why there's a four-step, and that's why there's a ten-step for us to deal with resentments. But we have to deal with them, okay? And how we can judge our spiritual growth, I believe, is if the time that we stay resentful, angry, gets less and less. That before, if I got resentful and I stayed angry for, you know, three days, but then it was two days, then one day, then, you know, well, I can resolve resentments in half an hour, then I know I'm doing okay. I don't think it's wrong that we feel a resentment in the first place. Um, I mean, maybe people who, who are way more spiritually developed than I am never feel resentment. But I think the point is that we try and resolve them as quickly as possible by seeing our part, by praying, um, by doing, um, by working the steps on the resentment. But having it itself, I don't, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's part of being human. We, it's just that we have to deal with it quickly. I hope that helps. Thank you, Melinda H., for your question this morning. Next up is Barbara A. with her question, and then it's going to be open for a few more questions that will time will allow. Hi, Barbara. Hi, uh, Janet. Thank you so much for your um, conversation this morning about step three. I am in a situation where I've been in for three years, one year in recovery, and, um, you know, saying the resentment prayer for someone and, and wanting to let go, and I have decided I thought it was God's intuition that I should just walk away from this situation. And there's so much in me that wants to not do that, that feels like I'm, if I walk away, then I'm not finishing God's job or, or whatever. So I guess my question is, the intuition is to leave this because it, it messes with my serenity. Um, I'm in recovery now. I've said my resentment prayer for this person. Why is there still the pull to want to fix it or, or to to have retaliation on this person who 
I guess my resentment prayer is not working. So I, just how do I resolve letting go, trusting God, going forward, knowing that I'm not going to be fixing this thing. And it is, and believe that that's God's intuition that I should leave. Okay, so I think in this situation, it's really, really hard to give a good answer without knowing the details of the situation, right? Like, I, I don't know if you're talking about an abusive relationship where someone's beating you or, you know, a child who's just super difficult to deal with. So I think it's very hard. Um, I will say this just as a general rule. We always have to forgive but it doesn't mean I have to be in a relationship with an abusive person. Um, that's a general principle. But again, I don't feel competent to answer your question without knowing the details. Sorry. Thank you, Barbara, for your question this morning. Are there any other questions out there this morning before we close? If you have a question, Herbert. press star one and give it. Herbert, hi. Anyone else? Hello, I have a question. Okay, your name, please. Um, it's well, it's it, it's a different kind of question. Jeannie N. Is it possible to get Krista's initial first initial of her last name and where? She... Krista S. is her name. I'm not sure if I remember where she's from. Is that S for Sam? Yes. Uh huh. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So we have Herbert Gloria, so far. Gloria H. Gloria H. Tamara B. Tamara B. Shana R. Okay, Shana, we'll see if we can get to you. The time is getting a little bit tight, but let's see what we have. Let's go with Herbert, Gloria, Tamara, and then hopefully Shana. Hi, Herbert, your question, please. Good morning. Thank you very much, and thank you for um, sharing with us um, my question is this um, about, I, I'm, I feel like I'm in the phase of my recovery where I'm slipping back into a relapse as if I'm on this plateau and it seems to be just part of this cycle that happens for me a few times a year over the last many years. And so have you ever felt that way? And um, what do you do about it to strengthen your recovery? Oh, no, my first six and a half years in OA, I didn't get recovery at all. I never even got like, two, I think two weeks was my record, but often it was like a day or here and there. Um, now, no, I don't feel like that because, so the book tells us that once we recover, we really have to spend our lives working hard on 10, 11, and 12, cleaning up the wreckage of the day, spending time growing in my knowledge of God and my love for God. Like we, we you know, we, really work on the 11th step prayer and meditation and a lot of time spent helping others. And I think there comes a, the book talks about, um, I think it's when they're talking about amends, they say right now we are trying to get our own lives in order, but our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum usefulness to God and the people about us. And if I am spending a good chunk of my time trying to get closer to God, learn more about God, be useful to God, and be useful to other people, then um, God's going to keep the food obsession away from me. And again, I mentioned it to someone else. I did 
a whole talk on it. I went through the big book to look at all the things that can lead a person to relapse. And um, it's on vision. It's called pitfalls in recovery. So that might be helpful for you to listen to. But I would say get excited about your time with God. If you're not reading things that spiritually excite you, I would recommend that you do that. Um, Find prayer and meditation techniques that help you feel closer to God and spend a bunch of time helping others. And then um, with the 10 step, make, for me, I try to make sure that I let myself get away with nothing. I, re- I call myself out on all my ugly defects. Thanks. Thank you very much, Herbert, for your question. Herbert F. And Jeannie, it looks like Krista S. is from Illinois. Let's move on then to Gloria H. with your question this morning. Star one. Star one, Gloria, it's your turn for question this morning. Okay, I was talking away on a muted line anyway. I said I was listening attentively for a change and a cliche, so many pearls of wisdom. Um, And I was just thinking, you know, um, all the things that were read and said, I've heard before, it's the practice. It's the practice that I'm having issues with, the honesty. You know, and then I, you know, half measures. And um, I'm on a vacation or stay vacation with someone. And they're definitely in all of the substances that I don't, I'm not supposed to uh, be indulging in. But, you know, I don't, I can't lead by example. I can't, you know, be a power, a model. Um, So when do you say the 12 step, when do you say this is what we should do or this is what, we need to do, or I, this is what I do if I'm not doing it. Is there such a thing as minding my own business and keeping my eyes on my own plate, and that works out perfectly and let God do the job? I, I'm just, you know, I know it sounds a little bit confusing, but so what is my question? When do I say something and when do I not say something? Because if the person is near and dear, old friend, killing themselves or whatever, do I jump in and say anything or just say a prayer? Well, I would say the chapter two wives really discusses um, what, when we're with people we care about who are in the illness. So that's a good chapter to read. Um, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. So if we haven't worked these steps and been spiritually awakened, I don't really have a message to carry. And if I'm not honest, because you mentioned at the beginning that you're not being honest, um, I, I personally don't, I, my interpretation of the big book is that it is not possible to have a spiritual experience if I'm living in dishonesty. Um, I can't just make a decision to stop eating compulsively. Right? My first step says I'm powerless, but I can make a decision to be honest. That I have the power to do. I would encourage you to just start with that. Thanks. Thank you very much, Gloria H., for your question this morning. Camera B, your question, please. Star one, Tamara. Hi. I, <clears throat> excuse me. It took me a while to get unmuted there. Um, I Thank you so much for your talk today. It's been very helpful. Um, when I hear things, uh, about, you know, this will happen for you uh, if you do this or, 
what comes into my mind immediately, well, this isn't going to happen for me in particular. You know, it will happen for others, but um, it doesn't happen for me. And and what shall I do with that? So I addressed that in the talk before that if a person says it won't happen for me, there's usually one of five reasons why they say that. So I would go back and listen and see which of those five apply to you. And then I also tell what we should do, what a person should do about it for each of those five situations. We can't just let this thought rumble around in our heads like it won't work for me. We say, okay, why won't it work for me? And then go from there. So I would go back and listen, see which part applies to you, and then apply the solution to it. Thanks. Thank you, Tamara B, for your question. And the last question for today, because of the time it looks like, will be Shana R. I'm glad we got to you, Shana. Star one, please. Thank you, um, and thank you so much for um, for speaking, uh, Jan. It was very, very insightful. Um, my question is about a resentment. Is it ever okay um, to handle resentment by not expressing it uh, knowing that you don't want to continue, this is a family relationship, not expressing it, but just keeping uh, the, the person at arm's length. Um, is that an okay way to handle a resentment? So again, is it ever appropriate? Probably, especially if you know a person's abusive. In the situation you're talking about, is it appropriate? Again, it's hard to answer that without knowing the details. So I would say that's something, first you go to God, do your resentment inventory, and then talk to your sponsor about it because your sponsor can get in the weeds on it with you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Dana R., for your question this morning, and thank you to everyone for your questions. It was very helpful to expand upon the step three concept today. And Janet, you've gave you've given so much of yourself and, and yourself such a faithful presenter here at A Vision for you. You do have lots of podcasts. So if anybody wanted to go look at our website to look at that sort of thing, please do. And that web address is www.avisionforyou.info. So we will now close as we always do in our very faithful, loyal way here at A Vision for You by reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you'll surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. 